Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, which I believe is on page 573, if you're looking for it in the Black Pew Bible. Tonight, as I mentioned before the service, we begin a series Uh, An ancient Christmas, the coming of Jesus in Isaiah, and over the next five weeks, Lord willing, we'll consider some of the prophecies uh, found here, written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And in considering these, we'll see how trustworthy God and God's word are as he brings these to fulfillment in Jesus, and we'll see the hope that he gives his people about their future, even people in great suffering or about to greatly suffer. And uh, who among us doesn't need to grow both in our confidence in God and his word and in hope in Jesus for not just now, but forevermore. So tonight we begin with Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, where God promises a coming son, a coming child, who will carry the weight of God's kingdom and the weight of his people's welfare on his shoulders. Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, hear now the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great Light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod. Of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult. And every garment rolled in blood. Will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. 
Father, we bless you. Thank you for the gift of the child who grew to be a man of maturity and bear the weight of our souls on his shoulders and our eternal destinies. Bless you. Thank you. And thank you that your kingdom is one that endures forever. We pray that you would strengthen our confidence and build our hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God gives to his suffering people a hero. That's the language of verse 6 when it speaks of mighty God, El Gibor, a strong warrior God. One of the encouraging storylines, if there are to be found any, amidst the various evil acts of terrorism we have seen of late here in the U.S. and in Paris and other places, has been the story of heroes. You have to sometimes scour the news for them, but they're there. I read recently many news outlets reported during the assault in San Bernardino. Denise Parazza, an employee of the health department where it occurred, says she can't remember much from the chaotic minutes when the gunman gunwoman came in, shot some 60 rounds or more in just the span of a couple minutes in a room filled with people killing. Um, by the account of the last story I read about this 14 people wounding 21 others. She says she doesn't remember a whole lot, but she does remember this, that Shannon Johnson, one of those who died, a fellow employee and friend, he wrapped his left arm around her, holding her close to him as they lay on the floor behind a chair, shielding her with his body, saying to her, I got you. Johnson did not survive, but she, Denise, was indeed a survivor. He was her rescuing hero in doom and gloom. He was light and hope for her. In dark places, when we are oppressed and helpless, a hero is a welcome thing. And this passage speaks to Israel and to us of that great hero, the Lord Jesus. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now as we work through the text, first I want you to think about the context Then I want you to think about the content, two things. The content, there's three or four things to be said here. Verses 2 to 7 are so clearly, as Christians read it anyway, about Jesus that some scholars say Isaiah could not have written them or that they aren't about Jesus. Some have said, well, they're not about Jesus uh, because some of the language is past and some of the language is present And they say the child must, written when it was 700 years before Jesus, the child must have already been given, or that light must have already shined in the darkness, as the past tense seems to indicate, before Isaiah spoke of it. And so the child we're looking for is not some future one, but maybe Hezekiah, who'd already been born. But of course, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, Hezekiah doesn't come close to fulfilling the description of the everlasting king given here. And besides, more to the point, the use of past and present tense doesn't necessarily mean it has already happened. Some of the language here is 
future. And in prophetic literature, it is a manner of speaking to describe yet future events as if they have already become accomplished fact because often the prophet stands as it were in the future looking back upon the promise and then seeing and spelling out its fulfillment prophets spoke this way because the words were so certain to be fulfilled it was this as if they were already a done deal you have a wonderful example of this in the new testament when the apostle paul in romans 8 to encourage us in romans 8 after speaking of our suffering In Romans 8, and you know the great promise of Romans 8, 28, that God works in all things for our good. He's speaking there of even the sorrows and sufferings of life. But he goes on to say at verse 30, he says of believers that those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Not the time to delve into the meaning of all of those phrases. But he's saying, if you trust Jesus, you're a believer in him. God planned your salvation, called you to faith, justified you. Meaning he forgave all your sins. He accounts you as as righteous in his eyes because of Jesus. You already have that in Jesus. It's already past tense in your experience. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. (laughs) And that's past tense. And if you're sitting here today as a believer, you know you haven't experienced that glorification. You aren't yet a soul made perfect in righteousness, back in a resurrected body full of health, standing in the new heavens and new earth, in the glorified state we all long for. And yet the Apostle Paul says, it is so certainly true of you, you who have been forgiven of all your sins, that that will happen for you. He can speak of it as though it's a done deal. This is... The way the Bible speaks prophetically, and so Isaiah does likewise. Well, since it's not Hezekiah and it's clearly Jesus, some have therefore said, well, no, no, the way around this is Isaiah didn't write this. Because, of course, if he did, it would be predictive prophecy, and that can't happen. There is no God, or if there is, he isn't the kind of God, they would say, who knows the future or so guarantees the certainty of the future to make this eventuality actual or he isn't the kind of God who would tell us about it or could if he could speak human language (laughs) there's all kinds of explanations so they say someone around the time of Jesus wrote it and slipped it into the Old Testament but of course since those who advocated that particular view began to do so we have since discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls Uh, they want to say uh, we want to say in response two things One, if you assume predictive prophecy cannot happen, well, then, of course, you're going to say that uh, it did not happen because you're saying it can't. But if God exists, and he does, and he knows the end from the beginning, and he's the kind of God who controls history so that his purposes will come to pass, and he can speak, he thought of language, then certainly predictive prophecy is not a problem. God even boasts of his ability. And in fact, he says, it's a reason to believe in me. Isaiah 49, verses 9 and 10, the prophet, uh, God says through the prophet, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, 
My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose. God says, believe in me. Listen to me. Trust me. You can bank on me. So is Isaiah some fictional story whose prophecies are fulfilled because they're written after the facts? Not at all. (laughs) And as I mentioned, the Dead Sea Scrolls with a full text of Isaiah, remarkably so, uh, including these prophecies, dates to hundreds of years before the coming of our Lord Jesus, establishing this didn't just get written you know, after the fact. So Isaiah 9 is predictive prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. One more note about context, and that is its immediate context given. It was given to a people who are about to suffer terribly. Just 10 years after this is given, the Assyrians, as recounted in chapter 8, the Assyrians will invade the northern tribes of Israel, decimate them, cart off some of them as the spoils of war to be enslaved by them in exile, and take over that region, repopulating it with Gentiles and Assyrians and others. 8.22 speaks of life in Israel being full of distress and darkness and fearful gloom. Will they be hopeless, however? Answer is chapter 9, absolutely not. The future is brighter, though it may feel to the believer then like it is always winter and never Christmas. That is not so. Rather, the, darkest, the darker the clouds, the brighter the rainbow. And into this doom and gloom, God says, light will shine, light brightly shining. And the Bible here is wonderfully and extremely realistic and yet hopeful. It doesn't say that the world is a great place. It doesn't say, well, if you just had the eyes to see that it is, you'd be okay. It doesn't say if we could all just get together, well, then goodness would ooze out of everybody's loving pores and we'd all get along. No, the Bible says this world is broken. War is common. People hating and hurting one another is normal, yet sinfully so. Uh, And we need to be rescued. So we're going to have a child king. This king, it says, will come from Galilee. That would have been like telling me, uh, somebody from, from Fayetteville. Who doesn't want to live in Fayetteville? <laughs> Sorry if you don't, but if you're from Arkansas, it's one of the great places to be. Don't leave us here in Siloam, however. <laughs> It'd be like saying, yeah, this guy, he's going to come from the Delta. And uh, saying he's coming from a city like Nazareth would have been like saying he's going to come from West Helena, you know, where the police all get thrown in prison by the federal agents for aiding and abetting the drug dealers. And if you're from there, I, I, I promise, I said too much and it was hyperbole, but nobody comes from there. Big things like this don't happen in little places out of the way like that. It happens in the big city, in the thriving metropolis. But no... In tiny little Bethlehem, out of you will come one who is to be ruler in Israel. So this word comes on the heels of a promise of great trouble ahead as a promise of hope. 
for the future. And we should receive it that way as well. Now, what is the content? And here's we'll spend the last of our time. Let's look at three things. Number one, in verses one and two, he, this one who is coming, the child, the son, he brings light into darkness. In verses three to five, he brings liberation to the oppressed. And in verses six and seven, he brings leadership to the kingdom. He brings light, liberation, and leadership. In the first place, in verses 1 and 2, it says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, even, he says, Galilee of Uh, the Gentile. So you understand the prophet is standing forward in time, looking back at her who was in anguish. That anguish hadn't even come yet. And then he says, but she will no longer be in anguish because light will come and good will come. He speaks here of Zebulun and Naphtali. These are the northern lands. They cover the area west and southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And they were part of the of the promised land that fell to the Assyrians. In fact, they were the first to be overrun. Uh, And uh, in the latter time, he says, uh, it is made glorious, this way of the sea, the beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the Goyim, Galilee of the nations. Okay. Having been overrun and the Jews basically having uh, been killed off or having fled that part of Northern Israel became mostly Gentile. Uh, and uh, where darkness had fallen, light would now shine. She who was in anguish in the future will no longer have gloom. And this was fulfilled as Matthew makes it abundantly clear, even referencing it in Matthew chapter 4. If you wanted to turn to 12 to 17, it says when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Verse 15, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them has a light dawn. (laughs) It couldn't be more explicit. Light. Even the light of the world has come, Matthew says, and Jesus came, and where did he go? Well, he came to Bethlehem and to the Jews, and he went to the Gentile region. He went even to the nations to preach, and he lived there for a time among them, the place where even the Assyrians had overrun. And I would simply pause and ask you this question personally. Have you yourself been visited by this light he who is the light of the world has come to shine light into our darkness and has he done that for you can you say with the apostle paul where he says in second corinthians chapter 4 that god who said let light shine out of darkness genesis 1 has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Has the light 
That is, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Has that come home to your heart? Has that light been shown in you? That's the first thing. He brings light in our darkness. Second, he brings liberation to the oppressed, verses 3 to 5. Go back to Isaiah 9, verses 3 to 5. Actually, look ahead to verse 4 for a moment. It speaks of the yoke of suffering endured and is laid on his back and the rod of suffering inflicted. These things are ended. The rod is broken. This is the language or the vocabulary of Egypt oppressing the Israelites, that same kind of yoke and burden and shoulder and oppression. Oppression is nothing new. They're going to experience it from the Assyrians. At the end of verse 4, it speaks of a defeat of Midian. It recalls an event in the life of Israel, which was meant to be an encouragement. And so we have to know a little bit about that event. You may remember that the Midianites had at one time come down upon Israel. And God had raised up for them a deliverer to rescue them. Who was that deliverer? It was Gideon. And you remember what Gideon did. He assembled an army of 30,000 fighters, really farmers. Uh, And then God whittled the 30,000, not down to 10,000 or 5,000, but down uh, to a measly little 300 of them. And what weapons did they use to fight back the Midianites? Well, they didn't have assault rifles or grenades. They used clay jars, twinkling lights, and the sound of their voices yelling to frighten them into uh, destruction. It's a marvelous story, but the point of that story is God gave them the victory, and he did it in such a way as to prove that it is not by might or not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He deliberately weakened the army so that it was absurd that they could win. To show that it was God who would do the work. And so it will be, says Isaiah, recalling the days of that liberation. The people enjoy a victory they do not win. God wins it, not in power, but in weakness. And we could add, not with an army, but with one man dying upon a cross. He liberates his people forever. And in the language of verse 5, Isaiah 9 God liberates them and everything combustible goes into the bonfire. The bloody soaked uh, battlefield uh, clothing, all of this. They go into the fire to be burned up because the war is done, the fighting is over, victory is assured as the enemy is destroyed. And of course, behind the Assyrian oppression or the Midianite oppression or the Egyptian oppression is the chief oppressor of all. The one who seeks the destruction of our souls, Satan himself, the serpent, the liar, the murderer there in the Garden of Eden, whom Revelation 12 speaks of as that great red dragon who sought to devour the child being born to the woman. But that child was led to safety and that dragon went off to make war against who? Against those who believe in Jesus. And the reason the Son of God appeared, 1 John 3 says, was to destroy the works of the devil. And to to deliver us from the domain of darkness and to bring us into the freedom of the children of God. That is what a king does for his people. A good, strong, mighty warrior king. 
He rescues us from all our foes. And one of them is the devil himself and all his hosts. What causes rejoicing then at Christmas? Well, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3, he started with the rejoicing. Both farmers and soldiers alike, he says, have their times of joy at the completion of their, reward, uh, of their work and the rewards of it. So he speaks of the joy like you have when you've harvested the grain and the harvest is over and the fruit lies before you or the joy you have when you're a soldier and you enjoy the spoils of war. And so it is in this case, this son who is to come, he is the farmer and the soldier. He reaps the harvest and gets all the spoils of war and we are his spoil. We are whom he has delivered us, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's family. And he delights to have us and he has joy. And do we share the joy that our Savior has in that victory and that freedom? Well, that's the second thing. He brings light into darkness, liberation from the oppressed. And finally, he brings, verses 6 and 7, he brings leadership to the ever-enlarging kingdom of God. They had the promise of an increasing kingdom. Verse 3, he multiplies the nation. He gathers the nations, even the Gentiles, into one family. And it grows and it grows. And the government, verse 6, is on his shoulders. In other words, he carries the weight of rule. Hebrews 1 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He carries it along. He holds it in his hands. And his shoulders are strong where ours are weak. Not a one of us can bear the weight of the responsibility for the safety and well-being of kingdom people or the expansion of that kingdom. It is all on the shoulders of this great king. And he rules with justice and he guarantees the victory of good over evil. So we are to take our fears and our insecurities and dump them on him because he can handle them. And why can he do so? The prophet wants you to be absolutely clear. It's all in his name. What name does he have? His name is his qualification. Who is he? He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. And he's the prince of peace. And this is where we'll close. He is, in the first place, the wonderful counselor or supernatural counselor or miraculous counselor. I'm told... Uh, that it is in the Hebrew language the word that is closest to supernatural or miraculous. It's the kind of counselor he is. Now, if you listen to Handel's Messiah and you hear that chorus saying, Wonderful counselor, they do it much better than that. Uh, it, It separates, right, with a pause because the old King James does and makes these two different names. And actually the Latin Vulgate has six names from these words. But but with modern English translations, we should understand this to be uh, four names. They're each double. And I I say that about this one particularly because all the other ones are clearly double. Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Here, Wonderful or Supernatural Miraculous Counselor. And in his counseling, he is wise beyond all imagination. And in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In fact, Isaiah 53 says it is by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted 
righteous. In other words, it's by his knowledge, because of his knowledge, he knows the best way to save us. As Isaiah 53 says, by bearing our iniquities. And so he's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's El Gabor, the mighty warrior, the hero. And he's not just God-like. He's not just representing God to us, putting a God-like face on a human person. He's God himself with us. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh. Or Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, but of the Son, it says, speaking of the scriptures, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So this isn't a new, just simply a New Testament idea. In fact, if you're reading Isaiah and you come across the child's name is Mighty God, and you simply read the next chapter in chapter 10 at verses uh, 20 and 21, it speaks and it uses the... It speaks of the Holy One of Israel who is the Lord and a remnant returning to the mighty God, El Gabor. And that clearly is God himself and here the Son as the identical title and name because that is who he is. He is as much God as the Father is God. And so he is strong enough to save. And when you are saved, it is God who saved you. He's the mighty God. He's not only wise enough and strong enough, he is loving enough. He is everlasting father. He has father-like qualities of compassion and care because he knows his helpless children need him. And he delights to love them. In ancient Israel, kings and judges and magistrates were often given the reverential title of father. Don't misunderstand. Isaiah isn't ascribing to him the, uh, um, the person of God the Father or the first person of the Trinity. That's not what... The, Isaiah is not confused about that. Don't be confused yourself. But he will rule like a father of his people. And an everlasting father at that. And only God can do that. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. There's total security under a king who loves you and rules over everything forever for your good. And so he's wise and he's mighty and he's loving and he is finally the prince of peace. He creates peace. He gives peace And the angels came on that night and proclaimed to the shepherds the birth uh, that would bring, that brought good news of great joy. For a child is born to you this day. They began with glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Right? Colossians 1 speaks of Jesus this way. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Ephesians 2 says he himself is our peace. By his blood spilled on our behalf, he endured what our enmity or warfare against God deserved. 
that he might establish reconciliation between us and God and God and us so that we could have peace forevermore. He's the prince of that. And so I simply close by saying, do you know this hero who is wise and strong and loving and who gives and creates even peace with God? Has he brought light into your dark heart? Has he brought liberation into your enslavement to the forces of evil? Then let him lead you likewise, for he is your king. But if you don't think you need his liberation, and if you don't think you need his leadership over you, then it just says how much you are yet still in darkness and without the light of life. May it not be so. May God enlighten our, uh, the eyes of our hearts in the knowledge of his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask for that. Lift and exalt Jesus among us and in our hearts. May he rule and reign as he does in reality so likewise over our lives. Help us to know the joy of his forgiveness of reconciliation. Help us to have the confidence in him and your trustworthiness and word. Help us to have hope in Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.